America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. They look out for the young kids. Okay, who's from a broken home? Who's got hate? Who can we find? And once you're in and you start committing murder, and some of them you know, talk about that, they, they, they make them practice like cutting up bodies, make them child soldiers. Today, we'll be venturing into the heartlands of the drug wars in Mexico and the rest of Latin America through the experienced, intrepid eyes of Joan Grillo. A guest on Joe Rogan, Joan has made quite a name for himself as a courageous journalist investigating crime and drugs. Some of the things he's seen and reported on, from decapitated bodies to crazed shootouts, are enough to send most of us mad and have been documented in Joan's books, El Narco, Gangster Warlords and Blood Gun Money. In this trilogy of narco investigations, he profiles some of the nuttiest mob bosses and the scariest ones too. He looks into the rise of Mexican drug cartels and exposes how America arms gangs and cartels. Always getting involved, isn't it? He's great to chat to. We bond over our shared experiences of living in Latin America, although my own time there featured no drug cartels or dead bodies, as far as I'm allowed to tell you. We talk today about what it is actually like meeting the real iterations of the bad guys in Breaking Bad or Scarface. We talk about the madness of El Chapo, who broke out of prison and did all sorts of dastardly deeds. And we delve into the moral and practical difficulties journalists have to navigate in their relationships with the cartels. If you go in too hard on them, you'll end up with your head on a pike. If you don't go in hard enough, you soon find you're nothing more than a mouthpiece for the mafia and you're in too deep. And if you ignore them, you're not doing your job as a crime reporter and you're letting them off the hook. So how do you tow that line? I don't envy them. It's impossible work, really, but Johan does a great job of it. And we do talk about the worrying increase in murdered journalists in Mexico. It takes a person far braver than me to do this job, so I have nothing but respect and admiration for Johan. Follow him on Twitter on his namesake account, um, Johan Grillo, and get started on his El Narco book trilogy. The links will be in the show notes. 
you're on the edge of drugs, police and gangster politics with Johan Grillo. Got Johan in. I was just telling Johan about the, probably one of the most intrepid journalists and reporters that I've spoken to that I've just cut my lip by trying to eat an anti-acid <laughs> uh, little little candy anti-acid thing uh, with using one hand for some reason and and it, it sliced the packet sliced my sliced my lip. Have you ever seen anything quite as uh, dramatic as that? It sounds pretty hardcore. It does. It does. It does, it does sound pretty hardcore. But uh, yeah, but no, I do do remember. I've cut my lip many times. And it is a it's a bad one. It just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds, doesn't it? Doesn't stop. And I was just panicking before this, trying to like get you know, oh god, I'm going to be late for you, and what am I going to do? And then just eventually <laughs> it, it stopped. And then you said, oh, go and clean it up again, maybe just in case. And I went and I put, and it was I used a wet wipe, and it started bleeding again. Yeah. So, oh golly, just right. Do you mind giving us a little rundown about your background, please? Yeah, yeah sure. So, I'm originally from from England, from a. Uh, Brighton area. I arrived in Mexico in the year 2000. I wanted to be a journalist. I came with a backpack and a one-way ticket and I started working at a English language newspaper called The News back then in 2001. I began working there and had the plans for staying for a couple of years, maybe in Mexico. And it ended up being 21 years that I've been here. And as I began working, I, I covered the crime issue, the drugs issue, and started hitting it very hard. And then the issue itself blew up. You started seeing from like thousands of murders to tens of thousands of murders to hundreds of thousands of murders related to the drug cartel violence. And I was working for magazines, for newspapers, for TV, and decided I couldn't you know, say everything I wanted to do with just these mediums and I started getting into writing books as well. Um, wrote, uh, uh, one book which became a trilogy of books about this issue um, and I've still been covering this since. And and so when I was, I mean, I used to live in Medellin in Colombia and it was basically like ev- everyone you speak to there has some story, something involved in, in, you know, the whole drug wars that was happening in the 90s and the 2000s in particular related to Escobar, of course, different kind of thing to, to Mexico, I guess. But is it is it that way in Mexico that everyone you meet has some sort of story involving the cartels and things? So Medellin is is a center of the drug trade. So Medellin is more comparable with like Sinaloa in Mexico, uh, because it's a it's a very much a heart of the drug land. And there's a lot of ways you can compare Medellin, where Pablo Escobar is from, to Sinaloa, where El Chapo is from. They're not the capital cities. They're both cities a bit outside, but they're cities of commerce. And cities with quite wild countryside where you started seeing a lot of these kind of bandits and stuff develop, which, you know, people, you know, which then came to become traffickers. In those places, in Sinaloa, everybody's got a story. And a lot of people got many stories. I mean, the drug trade there is huge. And the way it impacts society is huge. So everybody's got stories. A lot of people you can talk to there, you know, uh, they might have, you know, I know one younger guy, he went to school with El Chapo's son, Orbidio. You know, he was in the same class at school. You know, somebody else got a story that they, you know, had a, a fender bender. They bumped into the car of somebody with a drug trafficker who kind of came out and started to go down to their house, you know, to their family house and like demand that they pay the money right away. Other people who have got, you know, stories there of uh, of having some drug trafficker who was um, 
going after his sister or trying to court his sister and then meeting El Chapo some years ago, coming around his house there and other people who've had, you know, multiple family murdered or family involved in the trade. So in Sinaloa, everyone's got a story. In Mexico City, it's a bit different. Mexico City, the same as Bogota is different in Colombia. Mexico City is a city of 20 million people. Mexico City doesn't have the center of the drug trafficking in the same way. Now, the drug war in Mexico has affected the whole country to an extent, and there have been events here in Mexico City, but it's very different how things play out here to how they play out in Sinaloa, but then it's different how it plays out in other states in Mexico, Guerrero, Tamaulipas, Veracruz, these different places the like the way the violence has played out plays out in different ways. It's really, really interesting. And obviously you've been there for, for some time. Um, when you wrote, you know, El Narco, were you concerned? Are you concerned about any ramifications of divulging information and that kind of thing? You're living out there and all. So anybody I think who's been involved covering this heavily is concerned. I mean, anybody uh, in any time you do more intense reporting on this, whether it's books or documentaries, concerns come up. You know, there's, 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 there's no, there's always going to be the case. The main concern is in the field. So when you're actually in the field, so when I'm working in the countryside in Sinaloa or the countryside in Guerrero or Tamaulipas or some of these cities, stuff happens all the time you have to deal with. Um, it can be almost sometimes funny stories, I'll give an example of one that, one that happened recently. I was in Sinaloa. We're out in the countryside to the south of Culiacan. I was in a, in a car with a local singer, a producer singer, and we got stuck in the mud. So I got out of the car, okay, stuck in the mud, had to try and, try and push it. The car was just going around. And then a vehicle comes behind. I think, oh, someone's going to help us. I'm walking by, and they're all guys in camo you know camouflage gear oh my god (laughs) ak-47s so i just say i'm just kind of joking saying oh oh sorry you know sorry about we're in your way and trying to just be light-hearted about it and so the guy there's there's about four of them the 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 guy i reckon the leader's maybe about 23 years old the other guy some of them look 18 19 and they try and drive their vehicle around our car stuck in the mud then they get stuck too. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was waiting so for you to say that. Yeah, kind of bizarre situation. So they come out and we kind of laugh and say, look, so I'm just, I'm just a you know, lost British journalist here, like in the middle of nowhere. And, and they get on the radio and they call up people who come with a pickup truck and pull us out. And we kind of say, look, if we're in the area, maybe we can let you guys know we're here. So this kind of stuff happens all the time. That's just like a, a funny example. Another example, again, recently, filming in a border city um, uh, between the Mexico border and the, and the US border where there'd been a very, very big shootout between two rival cartels and it was covered up. And we went there to try and film, to try and film some stuff and get some testimonies about this shootout which were connected to a bigger story we were working on. And as we were going in, the, the local cartel you know, got wind we were going in and they said to other journalists, we heard this message, they said the, said the journalists around there, don't talk to them. There's a crew coming in, don't tell them anything. We were communicating with the journalists and the local journalists and one of them was really freaked out. You've got to leave the city right away. They called up. They're like, you know, they're not happy. You know, get out, get security protocols right away. So we said, 
call them. We want to talk to the cartel guys and try and explain we're here. We want to film here. So they call up the local cartel guy who's, a, who, who's dealing with the press, who, who considers himself a public relations guy for the cartel there. And say, we, you know, we want to talk to him. Tell him to come around the hotel. So he comes to the hotel. We're sitting there. Pulls in the car in AK-47s. <laughs> Big eye guy comes out quite aggressive at first. And then we're trying to kind of flip the situation and say, oh, we, we, look, how are you doing? I'm glad to meet you. We, we, we want to just try and tell the story here. We don't want to. And we try and talk to try and get, to try and say we want to film here. Um, now it gets into a very sad and difficult situation. Like you're negotiating with these illegal forces to try and ask permission to film. But what else can you do? So there's just a couple of stories of many, many, many stories of what working in the field means. So like any time now, now you say like afterwards, when you put out a film, when you put out uh, an interview, when you put out a book, who are you affecting? Who can be angry by that? There's a Mexican journalist I know called Jesus Lemus, uh, amazing guy, who was actually imprisoned himself for three years. He was writing stories impo- uh, exposing the local state prosecutors of being in league with drug cartels. So the local state prosecutor said, oh, I'm going to put you in prison for being a, a cartel member. And he was locked up with loads of the biggest traffickers. When I wrote this 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 book and I got a lot of advice from him because he knew so many of these guys. And I said, about how, how about this guy? Um, and I said the nickname of this guy and he said oh don't call him that he gets he gets like really really pissed if you call him that nickname if you refer to him as that nickname so all of these things obviously like what you do i mean and, and there's been other times which have been you know more direct threats um you know like you can't film here you've got to leave uh, i've been accused of being a, a dea agent on one occasion by some guys with with guns and uh, or people emailing you or people phoning and this kind of thing. So, so it, it's a very, very difficult thing that anybody has to try and deal with. Now, saying that, um, I've, I've been working here for 21 years and continuing. I've never had anything so bad I've had to leave the country. Uh, there are many colleagues, and mostly Mexican journalists, who have been murdered, who have had threats to the point of having to leave the country. Um, so also I don't want to kind of, in some ways, um, I, I came here looking for adventure. I came, you know, as a, as a journalist and as I'm wanting to go around different places. A lot of the journalists from here, some of them are from small towns or cities and it was their own places. So it was like, if I'm living in Brighton and suddenly Brighton becomes like a war zone, you've got no choice and you're even threatened in your own home where your family are there. And that's the circumstances that many people live in. I've had, you know, one good friend and a journalist who I, I respected very much, Javier Valdez, who was murdered in 2017. Um, they they shot him just outside his office in Culiacán, Sinaloa. Another journalist who I worked with, who disappeared in Michoacán in 2008. And, you know, it's been more than 150 journalists in total who have been, who've been murdered or disappeared in Mexico in the time that I've been here. So wh- why does a cartel... Well, firstly, I'm sorry about your friend, actually. That's horrible. I mean, does, does, uh, what, what does that feel like to, to lose a friend in that, in that way? I mean, in the moment it happened, and so I remember that, it, remember that 
to this guy, Javi Valdez, I first met him back in 2008. And I was working in Sinaloa and I got his number from somebody and I called him up. And he said, oh yeah, meet me in a cantina. I'd never met him before, he just, I got his number. He said, meet, meet me in a cantina. So I met him in a cantina and he was sitting there by himself at a table with like a bottle of whiskey and a glass, just like, <laughs> just get, get, get drunk. And I sat down with him and we talked and we got hammered and we were talk, just talking about all kinds of stuff. It's just like, you know, till about two in the morning. I remember driving back and we were listening to it was it was quite soon after the Amy Winehouse album Back to Black had come out and he was he had that album on his car stereo. He drove me back to his hotel to my hotel. He was very drunk driving, but anyway, and and he was playing that album. We were singing along to that album, and then that was in two thousand eight. His actually his first big major book came out for himself. Uh, I think two thousand nine, and then he started making a real name for himself after that as as quite a literary figure, and he had a very interesting style of kind of sometimes mixing a lot of like local slang with stories about drug traffickers. Um, in some ways, very much a kind of, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Norman Mailer. He, he was, he's a very interesting um, figure and he ran a magazine. Uh, and seen him a lot over the years since then, you know, I'd phone him up as well. And, you know, um, also and quoting in stories and somebody who would, who would, who would appear in stories and, and see him a lot when I went visit Sinaloa and meet him in the same cantina, which a lot of these kind of local uh, journeys would go to. I remember getting the call about his murder in 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 uh, 2017 and being a little bit frozen at first, a little bit kind of lack of reaction, at, almost like feeling a bit of a lack of reaction at first. And we went down to a big demonstration outside of um, the Interior Ministry in Mexico. And there's a lot, you know, he was a, he was a very popular guy and a lot of people there were, you know, there was a lot of anger. And I then go back and seeing his, his wife and his son talk about this. I'd say it's, it's hard. It, it, it's, it's quite a numb feeling, I think. It's quite a numb feeling, I think, seeing colleagues be murdered in that way. It's quite hard. It's, it's not quite the same, I think, as like your own family. It's hard to think about what the, his son is going through, what his wife is going through. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hard situation. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by 
other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Is it something that's happening more and more? And why? What what happens for a cartel to take out a journalist? So there's 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 been an increase in the murders. This year has been very very bad. Generally, it's been uh, it was increasing from the twenty hundreds into the twenty tens, and it's kind of reached a very high level and stayed there, although this year was particularly bad. The first few months of this year were were terrible. Uh, There's different reasons um, for each murder. Sometimes, you know, a lot of the time we don't know, and the problem is you have massive impunity in Mexico. So you have, uh, in some, uh, you have overall in Mexico about, one in 10 murders are solved. So the clearance rate is 10% overall across the country. Even when that happens, though, often they're not really solved. It's been somebody innocent being put in prison. In some states, there's only a 2% clearance rate. So only one in 50 murders are solved. So now imagine what that means is if you murder somebody... You've got a one in 50 chance of being caught. <laughs> really, at most, that's a pretty big incentive to get away with murder. So that's part of the reason why, I mean, the violence is so terrible here. And you can have 35,000 murders a year, according to official figures. And it's often roughly the same with journalists, maybe a little bit better with journalists, because there's more pressure to solve some of these journalists' murders. They're not that much pressure, really. So first, they can get away with killing journalists. Now, there's different reasons, but because these, this case is not officially solved, it's hard to know. Sometimes I look into these cases and have my own theories about, like, oh, maybe, you know, you look at the evidence, think maybe this cartel murdered them for this particular reason. Sometimes people can be murdered because they're exposing corruption. They're exposing connections between state governors or 
police chiefs. Is part of the reason that the, the crimes are not solved um, because police are scared and they're looking, or they're in their pocket of the cartel and looking the other way? Yeah, so corruption is absolutely massive. I mean, there's huge amounts of cases where like police are involved with the cartels, or you've got a kind of weird like level of like corrupt criminal, political, business interests, kind of which kind of coalesce around a kind of dark system of power in these places. So you can have like, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you talk about people talk about narco state. I, I don't like that word too much, but like about the idea of, um, you know, captured state and kind of criminal political bad interests. Um, and some of the people are scared. Some of the people who, who go against that are scared. And if they try and say, well, I'm going to try and you know, arrest some people, they, they're getting pressure, you know, from the other way. Um, uh, but anyway, but the reasons why journalists can be targeted, sometimes it can be for exposing corruption, exposing a corrupt governor, a corrupt police chief, uh, a, a corrupt judge, um, exposing powerful interests. And so they're targeted by the cartel or by the cartel political interests. Sometimes it can be for, in some way, offending some cartel figures. It can be for uh, even a quote they're using from somebody else in their story, which they feel is offensive to you know, that car, you know, cartel figure, this drug boss, you know, says, why am I being called a coward? You know, who's calling me a coward? How dare they print that somebody else calling me a coward? Uh, I'm going to go after them. Sometimes it can be, you know, you get these. So the cartels will try and exercise control over what the press say in their areas. Now, it can be, as we discovered in this place I was describing going to where they, this, you know, where we had to try and discuss if we can film here about this massacre. And I saw very clearly that I actually spent quite a lot of time hanging around with the cartel guy who was overseeing the press in this town who himself responds to his own boss. Uh, and he, you know, actually got to know him a bit and, and he was like, oh, I've just got the pressure from my boss about... And his pressure was, and his their, their main thing was, they don't want attention brought to this place. In this place, they have the drug cartel operating there. They're smuggling drugs over to the United States. They've got these obvious big houses that traffickers have, safe houses... What they don't want is the army and the federal police coming to there, being sent there. So if there's news of a big fight between cartels and 30 people dying, that can bring in the army, the federal police. So say to the journalists, none of you are going to cover this. None of you are going to report this. None of you are going to put it in your newspaper. So these local newspapers, they're like under this incredible pressure where they have these cartel figures saying... You know, you can't put this in your newspaper. You can't. But then sometimes they want violence. They want massacres in there. There's the whole thing going back of the very public use of violence. Mass beheadings with, with messages. Uh, you know, mutilated bodies on the street with these big messages, videos, people tortured, exposing stuff. And they want that. And they want people to see that. So then they have this kind of pressure of, oh, you've got to print this. We want you to come print this. So these journeys can be, you know, pushed both ways. They can be... Then you also have a situation where you have two cartels fighting over a territory. 
and fighting over controlling the press in that territory. So then you also have like, okay, well, you know, you guys, you're working on the other cartel. So all of these factors can come in um, and, you know, and, and the sad thing is, you know, there are other reasons of just, you know, general violence happening as well in these places, um, which can affect the press. There must be so many examples then of, I suppose, young, ambitious journalists who start out wanting to expose this kind of corruption and drugs and stuff. And then it's just a few meetings, like you said, what you've had, and I've had them myself as a journalist. And you're always feeling sort of, it's not a nice feeling when you're sitting there having to negotiate anything as a journalist, because the whole point is you're supposed to say what you see. But unfortunately, that's the reality, isn't it? And I can imagine it starts, so it starts off, you're all ambitious and clean, and you want to, and then you have these meetings, and you sort of get in with them, and you end up being their sort of spokesman by the end of it. And there's no way out of that, is there? Yeah. Um, that's that's a very hard thing, and it's 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 very very tough. The conditions which a lot of the journalists in the field are under. Um, if you're in a small town where the drug cartel has so much power, you know how 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 do you deal with that? Um, how do you deal with that power? And there's a lot of debate uh, about, for example, publishing or using the narco messages. Uh, early on when they started to blow up in a big way which is around 2008 2009 or a bit earlier from 2006 the first uh mass beheadings were around 2006 and and first of all everyone was you know putting this in the newspapers you know you know i was writing stories about this and then you realize well are we just transmitting their message then it started to be well should we not cover or print their messages but then you get the government coming in and started saying, you know, they, you had these, you know, these government strategies of saying, we don't want to talk about drug cartels. Don't talk about drug trafficking because uh, it's bad for Mexico's reputation. So you had this strategy, particularly of a president called uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who, who ruled from 2012 to 2018, had the strategy of change the narrative. Um, we've got to talk about something different. Um, don't talk about this stuff and, and, and try to hide and suppress talking about it so that's a you know thing as well i got, I got called into uh the president's office under felipe calderon and and one of the uh spokesmen there one of the press people there said uh you know are your coverage is is you know why are you covering all this stuff why you know it's bad why are you constantly in the foreign press talking about this drug cartel violence um and, and why are you not giving the government's point of view enough so I was like, well, speak to me, you know, give me some interviews, you know, because, you know, why are you guys, you know, being so uh, evasive about the way you're trying to talk about this? So you've got a lot of pressures coming from different sides and it's a difficult thing to cover. But yeah, how do you cover it? Um, do we sensationalise violence? I mean, maybe sometimes in the press we do sensationalise violence. Uh, in Mexico, the violence has been so bad, I think it's been beyond sensationalising overall because it really generally has been that terrible. Um, but is our stories of cartels or when we get more into things like um, the bigger stories, the fiction, the narcos, is that kind of thing, glamorizing it, sensationalizing it? Maybe, yeah, to an extent, uh, but it's also telling these stories that are really happening. So you get some difficult territories there. It's really hard. You're being pulled this way and that. So, I mean yeah amazing amazing work that you guys do um and and one of the people at the heart of all of all of this in mexico is joaquin guzman or el chapo and and was he responsible for was he the one who started all the beheadings and stuff like that he he wasn't uh the very one who started now the role of el chapo 
himself and you know I've covered you know his story a lot I've been to his home village you know met his mother uh, sat with his you know his cousin uh, been around there I've been oh I sat through some of his trial in New York so I saw him there on the stand and, and talked to his wife uh, now Chapo is a major drug trafficker but in some ways his name and his reputation made him become bigger even bigger than he really was I mean, he became one of the three most infamous gangsters in the last century. You know, I'd say it's Al Capone, Pablo Escobar, Chapo. Those are the three, top three. Um, there's something about the fact he escaped from prison twice. Um, the, the, the songs about him, his kind of image. I think his name, El Chapo, Chapo Guzman. I think there's something catchy about that name more than some of the other ones. Um and it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. Then Sean Penn wants to go and meet him. So then there's like Sean Penn meets Chapo is a story itself. And then the because the press... So these things kind of blow up and it becomes like, you know, Chapo's responsible for so much stuff in Mexico. He's one of many. Now, I'm not saying he's not big. and I'm not saying he didn't... His people didn't murder a lot of people. And he himself, you know, according to what we heard in the trial, didn't murder people personally. But he's one of many. Now, the, the beheadings themselves... They began around 2006, although the kind of modern stage of beheadings. And one of the sources that, that inspired this, and this was according to uh, who, a guy who was uh, one of the main cops in the, in, the, in the drug war, who is currently actually in prison facing trial. So you obviously have to take a... He was, he was one of the main cops and himself was involved trafficking drugs. But he said they copied this tactic from the Al-Qaeda videos and stuff you saw the um zarqawi video uh, al-qaeda in iraq um which was i think 2004 that was shown in mexican tv in full where he cut somebody's head off with a sword I remember watching that at the time in full on mexican on a mexican news show um, and then you started seeing fairly short time after that those ones you started seeing this in mexico the first incident as far as i know was two policemen who had their heads decapitated who were decapitated um who were involved in a shootout with some drug traffickers and then you had a, 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 an incident kind of rose the stake of five heads being chopped off and being rolled onto a disco dance floor uh, in a town called Uruapan by a drug trafficker known as, as el mas loco or the maddest one now, he was an interesting trafficker because he portrayed himself as a born-again Christian who was creating this kind of medieval justice. And he said, like, he had this, this crazy message. I remember at the time I was working in the news agency AP and the person on the TV desk said, oh, check out this video that's just come in. And it was a video of these five heads on the dance floor and this message. And they were like, we're not putting it out on the on the wire. We're not on the on the video wire. We're not putting it out there. It's too bloody. But funny enough, then some Japanese TV company specifically asked for it. So we want that video. We want to make sure you send us that video of the uh, of the five decapitated heads. And then it carried on going up. It was like a, it was kind of a raising the stakes. It was like five, and then it became twelve. I remember writing a story when there was twelve, 
and then there's 14s, 18s. Were there people on the dance floor? Yeah, I think that they went right into the, the club and just like rolled these things and like bang and then like message out and stuff and just like, yeah, just like, just like, you know, uh, stormed into this place. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it was during this, this, this turf war. Uh, and, um, the, then eventually they rose up to leaving in one event 49 bodies and they were all decapitated in that in that case it was actually it was it wasn't 49 heads it was 49 bodies which were all decapitated and all had their hands and feet cut off and now this was in a little town near the city of Monterrey in Mexico this was in 2012 and I worked for that time I worked for Reuters news agency I worked for both news agencies different times and I got a phone call on the Sunday so we got this big incident up in Monterrey I flew up there to, to Monterey area and, I, and then I went to the morgue when the bodies were t- taken into the morgue and and it's just a stench of human flesh and and then go, we were going to the places you know right where the bodies were dumped and people were like numb and that same kind of numb feeling I was describing about you know seeing a colleague become murdered you see these pe- people a lot in the situation where people just become very very numb to the violence and they were like I was like yeah you know, there was 49 bodies dumped here a few hours ago and they're like yeah 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 nothing to do with us um, you see the football happening now that, that was kind of like where people were talking and like because um, their team was in the semi-final I remember the, of, of Mexican Cup and uh, and it's kind of numb feeling now at the same time in that morgue where I was at there was a bunch of people outside it and they were families looking for the disappeared loved ones and there was one woman there and I talked to her so I was interviewing them outside I know she's like I'm looking for my son oh okay you know what happened to him oh right he was kidnapped from our house our family house by a bunch of guys with guns and she was a school teacher her son was a 18 year old philosophy student so again you see how this you know affects you know it doesn't just affect, you know, a lot of poor people are the ones who are the most who die with this. But there are middle class people, upper class people also, when you have this level of violence in a society. Uh, and uh, an 18-year-old philosophy student who was dragged from her home, taken away by about like 15 guys with uh, balaclavas and guns. And she hadn't seen him since. Um, and that effect, when you see that effect of, of some, you know, of her story and her face and her pain... It's when this level of violence can start to come home and what this means with this level of violence in a country. Yeah, the difference between hearing like a big statistic and numbers and things and, and getting the real personal story. What what would someone like him have done? Because so, cause I, I was under the impression it would either be sort of journalists, politicians and other you know rival gang members and police officers, I suppose. So why a philosophy student? Why is he getting kidnapped? So in that particular case... Um, First, you have like when you have like these hit squads around, um, you know, who are used to just committing murder, whoever they like. Then they can start like preying on people. So in that particular case, they might they they went in, they robbed the house, kidnapped him, got a bit more money from a ransom, and then maybe decide I would just kill him afterwards anyway. But also, they can. There's a lot of like forcible recruiting as well. They can like recruit people forcibly, and then they can use them. So they can use them. Sometimes they can actually, you know, forcibly recruit people and then use them them as as hitmen. Sometimes they can throw them into like, um, you know, working in different jobs. 
some women who have become you know brutalized and been sex slaves uh, for these cartels have been taken so yeah you've got a lot of horrific stuff happening there and and you know there's it certainly was a a myth here in Mexico and got partly broken um, in its time, a myth that only the bad guys are being killed or only people kind of involved in some way. Many innocent people have been targeted. And it can be, um, you know, caught by stray bullets. It can be mistaken identity. And it can just be for some, like, you know, you in a wrong place at the wrong time or just like acts of terror, basically, where people have done stuff to just kind of create terror, where they go in there and they want to... They want to um, there's a, there's a tactic they have called heating up the territory, which in Spanish is said calentando la plaza. And that's where they go into an area controlled by a rival cartel. What I was saying before about how the cartels want, they don't want news of violence. They deliberately go somewhere and create news of violence. So stuff they do is like, they've done stuff like throw grenades into like plazas and just go in there and spray up cars, create a big stink there. So then the army is sent in and they mess up their rival's territory. So you've got all this kind of crazy stuff happening in that way. I've done, I've done you know, I've noticed when reporting in other languages and stuff that being English, it can sort of go both ways. Because on the one hand, people can sort of uh, look up to you in a sense and you can get away with stuff. On the other hand, I imagine for you, uh, in a sense, there might even be a, a bigger price on your head as sort of a hostage and that kind of... Do you ever worry about that stuff? Do you ever worry about your, your own life? And is, is it different for you being English out there? So obviously security is something you think about all the time. Now, I'm talking... We've been talking about Mexico. I also reported right across Latin America in you know El Salvador, Honduras, you know, Brazil, Colombia, Haiti, these different places, Jamaica. So there's different factors in these different situations. Uh, like, I would say, you know, you have to like, in terms of engaging with people and like when you interview, and I've interviewed a lot of drug cartel members, you know, a lot of murderers, a lot of, a lot of traffickers, um, in terms of dealing with them personally, you, you, you deal with them, you find your own strengths, I think, and you can deal with them. And, and I know, and I, and I don't, I think it can cross nationality. I think, uh, you know, I know Mexican reporters, who and you know are very good as I know like South American reporters who come into Mexico so they're foreigners but from like a different country in South America who are very good it's about um, connecting and kind of finding a level and, and that kind of thing that you do with in terms of, of interviews with, with dealing with people um, me being white uh, and, and Anglo you know means that you get accused of being a DEA agent you know you had this this kind of collective uh, paranoia or fear or accusation that you're like a, and even if you say well I'm British you know, I'm, not, not, I'm not American it's like you know it can throw them off sometimes but it is something that always comes into their head now at the same time if you're uh, Mexican you know if you're from that local city it's like where you're from oh you're from that area so like a journalist who's from a particular area where a certain cartel is big then you're considered maybe as being part of that world so you've got a lot of issues that way um, or you could be a local Mexican cop um, or all kinds of things. Um, you know, if you are uh, Mexican-American, you know, you could still be a DA agent. In fact, a lot of DA agents um, who do undercover work are Mexican-American or Hispanic-American because they can kind of blend in and, and do this stuff, they to be drug traffickers. So you've got you've got all kinds of things. Uh, I think it's about about playing um, 
playing to your strengths in that sense. Uh, I think there is a certain element, a certain cost um, of somebody if they of how many how much consequences are they, are they going to be if they murder this person. Now, if they murder somebody from a local newspaper in the middle of nowhere, there's less cost they can get away with it. Um, if they murder someone from a big media outlet or somebody, there might be more costs. However, you could never be overconfident because you might be dealing with a 15-year-old kid with an AK-47 and a bunch of grenades who's not thinking this through, you know, really in a big way. Uh, and there have been foreigners who have been killed. Uh, there was a, a French filmmaker who was murdered in El Salvador by gang members. There's an American who was shot dead uh, in a shootout here in 2006, an American journalist. Another who was killed in the mountains and been various American uh, and and British civilians just murdered. One recently, there was a British guy, um, part of a kind of British uh, ex uh, pack community. Uh, a guy was selling real estate in uh, over in Palo del Carmen area. A friend of a friend and he was murdered uh, about two months ago. They shot dead in front of his 14-year-old daughter. Yeah. <gasps> That's horrible, and also because that's the holiday area, isn't it? That's I guess you don't associate that with with all of that stuff. It's become there's been a lot of violence there recently, uh, I, and I haven't I haven't you know really looked into this deeply, but I think there's I mean there, there was traditionally a certain um, idea from a lot of cartel members of we don't mess with the tourist areas, they bring a lot of money for Mexico, we don't really want to mess with these. Um, it seems that there's local drug gangs, drug bosses. I think a lot of it's to do with local sales. A lot of like businesses now, not just trafficking large amounts of drugs to Americans, but selling drugs in nightclubs. Um, so people who are doing that, selling, um, you know, cocaine, crystal meth, you know, whatever they, that they can sell there in the in the clubs, pills. You'd imagine um, in in those places. There's kind of more of a rave culture, and and even though there's been various violence, it still hasn't stopped the tourism. You know, tourism is still coming into Mexico in a massive way. So this stuff must keep you up at night. Then surely there are nights when you're thinking, you know, not just not just on what might happen to you, but also the things that you've seen. So I remember in some of the early days when I first started seeing the dead bodies, and I hadn't really seen dead bodies in England. I worked in, in, in the Royal Sussex Hospital in Brighton as a patient porter for a while. I remember taking a, a guy who passed away downstairs there. But I hadn't been around uh, violence in that sense. I'd seen you know fights in the UK. I'd seen people getting stabbed, people being glassed, I remember, in the UK growing up. But like I hadn't seen this level of violence. So I remember the first couple of times I arrived at these murder scenes... And you see somebody's face has been blown apart with AK-47 bullets, you know, totally blown to pieces. And you're like staring at, the, staring at it going, wow, you know, that, that, that's, that's a human face there, but it's been, it's been torn apart with bullets. Um, or seeing somebody has been decapitated. Uh, and then kind of staring at them. And again, that kind of numb feeling. And then you see these family members arrive and like, you know, the wife, the daughter, the mother arrive at the scene, the brother and like, and their the pain in their faces it kind of brings it home it makes it real and then I remember coming home and then like you know being going to sleep and actually having these images in my dreams sometimes these kind of images of bodies and stuff uh, 
and you get used to it. Um, and you know, you see these hardened cop reporters in Mexico, and I've got friends there, photographers who have photographed more than 2,000 bodies. And it, it just becomes something normal. And it's like you, you're at these murder scenes, then you go off and have breakfast. You know, you go off and have some, you, go, you know, you're in the night and you go off and have some, you know, some steak and it's kind of, you know. Um, and, and it's something I think that, you know, becomes, you get used to. I think there's a separation as a journalist. And it's, say, so it's more, rather than seeing bodies, I think it hurts more, or, or you feel more the empathy because it's hard to feel empathy, say, for, for, for a corpse um, or a mutilated corpse. One of the things about when you look at these corpses and they're like they're like on the ground, they're sprawled, their arms are like they're in this kind of it's, it's strange. You look at them, it's like an indignity um, that, you know, they're, they're, they are they are they are dead. It's, 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 you know, they're, they're no longer human in a sense that um, uh, but when you see and you talk to people who are really feeling pain and have gone through like this, this mother whose son disappeared. Or in other cases, like going to Haiti and, and, and you know talking to somebody whose entire family have just been killed, and you feel their pain, but it is not your pain. Um, and, and still, you know, with your own family, you could still like to an extent. You have to like block it out to an extent. I think you have to try and have a certain decorum, a certain professionality, professionalism. And uh, but then when you have like. You know, still, if your own family, something happens, it, it's different. Somebody you love, something happens to, it's different. So, so I think it's it, it's you know it's a, it's 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 testing, but I think you know I think it's like like many jobs where you're whether you're dealing with you know trauma um, or you're dealing with people going through traumatic situations. There is that really strange thing, and I've had it again in my own journalism, and, and a lot of other journalists I've spoken to have got it. Um, and it's not just journalism, any industry, I suppose. When you're doing your job, you're somehow able to put a sort of mask on. If the camera's on you, for example, or you know you're in a particular place because you're reporting on a thing for your work, it's almost like you're seeing it through someone else's eyes. Do you get that as well? Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it. And sometimes I think people have to be careful of that um, and a careful of in invincibility with that. I remember being in a situation in Haiti. This is the earthquake of 2010. And we were covering looting, people looting and, uh, in these stores. And as we were covering that, the uh, the police started firing. And with a camera guy there, he was filming this and filming the police firing and people running. And it's like, you say it's like you feel like I'm outside this and I'm looking at it. Especially if you look at the camera, it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I was saying to the guy, run, you know, run, they're firing. It's like, no, you're also here. You're not just filming it, you're also there. So I think, you know, one of the, the, the risks for cameramen, particularly, why a lot of cameramen are the ones who get killed in these shootouts, particularly because, you know, like you're in there, and, you know, in the lens, so you kind of haven't got the, the eyes around, but also you're caught in that moment. Um, and, and that you can that makes you vulnerable as well I always I remember we were running away at one point because a rally had gotten out of hand in Argentina and there was tear gas and stuff and my camera person let their camera sort of drop for a bit and we were running and I then went get the camera back on get the camera on come on put it on and she had to sort of put it on and it was just this awkward thing and then you are thinking is it worth it for this whole you know we should really focus on, on running away from the madness around us I don't know. It's all mad, isn't it? Um, and it, that's the thing with being a journalist. It's such a weird, strange thing. 
but being a a gangster is a weird thing as well, I suppose. And what what do you think? It, do you have you identified sort of I don't know uh, personality traits and and I suppose it's a mixture, you know, who they are, DNA, and all that stuff in in these people who go on to become the El Chapos of this world. Absolutely, yeah. So, so you know, you can see different. There's different. You know, the 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 criminal industry or the cartel industry is massive, and there's many different people with different positions. You have people who are the leaders, you have people who are workers, people who are smugglers, people who are businessmen and people who are killers. So if you look at the murderers, then you have people, you have to have people who are going to keep their nerve. So it's like not anybody who can be there, you know, at the moment and go bang, bang, bang and keep their nerve and be very kind of cold in that moment. But some people can be. Um, Some of them have suffered uh, the fact that they can commit horrific acts to other people is because they themselves have suffered. You know, people have been abandoned as kids. And it's like, you know, it's one guy only from Honduras, like, you know, fuck the world. I was left as a kid. You know, my mum and dad abandoned me. I was left here fending for myself on the street. I was in kids' homes. You know, I, wanna, I, don't, I don't care if I hurt other people. You know, I'm going to make them feel pain as well. And he and himself... Uh, talked to me about how he butchered the entire family when he was a teenager. Um, so some pretty horrific stuff and how he decapitated people when they were still alive and how he and he was describing that and describing doing that. Now, now he himself has been murdered uh, since then. So like, you know, but this kind of thing, you know, people who can be, uh, keep a cold head. Now, some of them, are psychopaths. I have met some, I think, yeah, they're psychopaths. And uh, I read uh, that book, The Psychopath Test. Yeah, me too. He was on this podcast, John. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Give a, a shout to him then for that. I remember reading that book. Um, uh, uh, I remember reading that book as, as I was covering some of this stuff during writing my second book. Uh, and it made me think about the idea of psychopaths, in fact. And, and, I, and some I think I look at me, yeah, yeah, they're psychopaths. They really don't care. But I think that's a minority. And, and obviously somebody who's a psychopath, that's a, you know, if you want to get into the cartels, it's a good career path for you because, you know, obviously, you know, you've got certain attributes that work well. But that's a minority. I think the majority actually do feel this. Now, even this guy I was describing, a butchered the entire family, um, his, his, his nickname was Fresser. And, and he's somebody, I think, who did have these kind of regrets, who had this kind of human side to him. Um, and he had these weird contradictions where he was then um, trying to raise a family trying to you know, had children, trying to raise a family, um, trying to give them a life that he didn't have and then himself was murdered. And so he left then his kids without a dad as well. And these kind of cycles repeat. Um, but that's the, the lower level that the killers uh, and how they, how they you know, they, they do this and, and they kind of rationalise this. And, and then, you know, they, they often they, they kill, they don't just kill two, three people. These, they, some of them kill 50 people, 40 people. You know, they, they kill large amounts and, and, and they carry on and on with it and, have ways of compartmentalizing, but they also are they are soldiers, and some of them call themselves soldiers. They are following orders, which takes away a certain responsibility or a personal responsibility from this. You know, I, I'm 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 carrying out orders. I'm part of a machine. You know, I've got a, a certain identity. Now they talked about the concept of sicario, or the concept of the, of this. You know, which was uh, actually originally a, I think a, a a kind of biblical term. Sicario kind of goes back to kind of Jerusalem and stuff. So there's a word there. Uh, and then they kind of had it in, in Medellin, in fact, the Medellin cartel, which, which had the Sicarios. And they talked to, about an Israeli um, kind of guy who was involved with cartels, one of the people who helped engineer the first uh, groups of Sicarios. 
and his idea of recruiting a large amount of poor kids from these neighbourhoods, give them a gun, give them a mission. You don't have to pay them that much. Like the cost of murder in Latin America went down very, very much. Used to be, you know, used to have a like lot more professional kind of killers. Um, you know, pay quite a lot of money to kill somebody, and it kind of went very much down. And these like large armies of hitmen, and partly it's given them a sense of purpose, given them, you know, you know, give them a sense, you know, certain amount of power, certain amount of resources that they can have. In some ways, a middle class lifestyle, gaining towards a middle class lifestyle in a very poor neighborhood. Um, you know, you talk to these, you know, I remember interviewing one Sicario for the Medellin, in Medellin, who who was, a, you know, he'd go home and play PlayStation and, 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 uh, and he'd be into this kind of stuff and into like designer clothes and stuff, stuff that he could afford in a very poor neighborhood. So he's kind of get that step up and, you know, and, he, and you're not thinking really too far ahead. It's a really interesting dichotomy it's just about about um what we were saying before about the mask of the journalist and then there's the foot soldiers themselves and you've got these two sort of people who are acting on almost on behalf of others really interesting that's 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 correct yeah yeah um, and yeah we're, we're all we're all part of these these games we're playing on these structures but then the leaders um, are different so the leaders um are, are people often with uh with much that people could be very clever, sometimes come from these environments, but sometimes be a little bit not the very bottom of these environments. Sometimes they can be, but sometimes, sometimes like from these neighbourhoods, um, but with certain certain benefits within these neighbourhoods. Um, if you look at the Jamaican drug lord, Dudders Coke, who, whose nickname was the president, and he became a very, very powerful force in Jamaica. And his dad was a drug trafficker as well and kind of a gangster. So he actually went to a private school. He was actually had certain benefits because his dad, you know, had money. So he was already slightly above, economically above most of the kids in his neighbourhood. I found his maths teacher and his maths teacher said, you know, I had to like doorstep him, you know, basically find him and, you know, and, and, like, you know, and he said, he said, and he said like he was a very smart kid. He was very good at maths. So some of these guys are clever now. Um, Talk to some other guys who are more in the leadership of these organisations. Some of them can be mid-level, like they have, uh, they command certain areas. They command, um, it can be a thousand people. Talk to a, an MS-13 gangster in in, uh, in El Salvador about about a thousand people, but he was only one section of the MS-13 gang organisation. A guy in Brazil who was one of the founders of a group there called the Commando Vermelo, the Red Commando. Um, who was a bank robber. He, he'd re read loads of books in prison. And he was very kind of thoughtful. I'd ask him questions and he'd think about it and then very kind of smart answers. So people who are clever. Now, I asked this one guy. It's interesting. This one guy who was a, who'd been an MS-13 leader. He was from Honduras and he'd run an MS-13 clique in Maryland in the United States. And I was like, how do you control? How do you, you know, how control power and he's like you know violence but it's not just about violence it's about controlling people and he said to me like you're doing to me now and he was right i was kind of trying to you know as a journalist you try and control people you try and get them to do what you want to give you the interview to give you the information and and you know and he, he recognized you, you know we do these things unconsciously or subconsciously um you know we start to try and exercise our control on somebody uh, to get them to do what we need you know we need them to give us those quotes uh, you know we need those for our story um 
and that's our job. And then they're but they're they're trying to control people, trying to have leadership. So so yeah, again, it's it's like I think people like leadership in any organization, and like in any organization, you get good leaders and bad leaders. Um, but like bad leaders in in these kind of organizations can sometimes end up being you know murdered and got rid of if people don't like them, they betray them. El Mas Loco, who I mentioned in Michoacan, was this gangster, and he believed he could control minds and it's this evangelical christianity and he started uh they the government believed they killed him and then he decided to go along with that and create himself as this kind of undead figure in these kind of weird like jesus robes and um eventually he was murdered and apparently his own bodyguards were involved in his murder because he, apparently by the end he'd like pissed off everybody so as well like you know if you have leadership which becomes too narcissistic too kind of crazy you get your own people turning against you so you have a certain thing whereas in like a a regular company you know you can't murder your boss <laughs> in the same way like you can in the in the brutal cartel world so a lot of this stuff you're talking about these are smart ambitious people is and, and it, it leads on to my next question anyway which is going to be about you know how do you solve this how do you stop this going on because i presume part of the problem is there isn't anywhere for these people who are smart and ambitious and you know clever all this stuff to go um so is it is it about creating more opportunities or, or what do you do to get rid of the cartels i certainly think a big part of it is you need to have opportunities in society you need to have better parts of people uh you know you i've talked to seen operating really good social workers in some of these places who can reach out to the young kids who are recruited into the cartels and who can um you know do really help them and you can change lives you know when you see these kids who are recruited at like 11, 12 years old. And they're from these very vulnerable backgrounds. You know, I, mean, I interviewed another guy in the Barrio Azteca, who, uh, which is an organization, uh, a cross-border organization in Ciudad Juarez and in Texas. Uh, but he was talking about how they recruit young kids. And they look out for the young kids who are like, okay, who's from a broken home? Who's got hate? Who can we find? So it's like, you know, they're reaching them and offering them, you know, we're going to offer them, first of all, we're going to recruit them, make them stand on a street corner, give them a you know a mobile phone give them 50 quid a week and then they start like rising in the organization and once you're in and you start committing murder and some of them you know talk about that they, they, they make them practice like cutting up bodies make you know make them you know make them in, you know, into child soldiers so there's a lot that the same kind of stuff happens that you see in child soldiers kind of stuff so how do you change that um how do you now the thing is it, it's big um but it's, it's very, very tough. Uh, and you get to some very hard questions. You know, how do you... Because, you know, you're going to have... I think you can reduce this. I think I think one way to look at this, like a lot of things in life, um, rather than being absolutist, like we can, you know, just get rid of this thing. We've got to try and reduce the level of violence. I mean, we have violence in England. We have gangs in England. We have drugs in England. But it doesn't affect society in the same way as it does here. So how do we... Uh, you know, try and reduce these things, try and reduce the power of organisations, try and reduce their recruitment. Um, and certainly, you know, so real social work, real change is one of the ways. Um, in Medellin, there was the classic case and this Mayor Fajardo who had this idea you have to kind of build the most, the best buildings, the most beautiful buildings in the worst parts of town. So he built a music conservatory in the worst uh, ghetto in, in Medellin. And so you kind of force people to go there and have the idea of you can change people's relationship with their neighbourhoods 
and kind of, you know, like, you know, you're not just feeling I'm like, you know, I'm on the side, I'm just going to join the cartel. I've got some kind of, sort of stake in society. I think that's very, very true. It's also it's also hard um, in, in a place with this kind of level of inequality. I've been to like, yeah, there's the Spanish library as well in Medellin, which is like these, these stunning library things just on the side of the mountain and all sorts of innovation to the tramways and things to take people from the poorer parts into the centre, I suppose, to increase uh, social mobility. Isn't it weird to think that somewhere in the world, particularly in Latin America, but in other parts of the world as well, there are like child soldiers being trained right this second probably to, to cut up bodies and things like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's happening, continues to happen. And yeah, I mean, finding ways out of it. Now, I think another part, I mean, I, I think of the solution as being in three parts. So one, the first is being this kind of idea of, of social work or crime prevention or kind of turning things around. I think it's very, very important. Um, a second thing, I think, is the idea of drug policy reform. Now, that's a whole other, guess, other conversation. Um, drug policy reform, I think. Drug policy reform is not as simple as like there's legalization, there's a button you press and it all stops. So when we get into it now, we realize, well, okay, it's not as simple as like we're going to legalize heroin and legalize crystal meth and legalize fentanyl. Um, but we can start off from the, you know, from the idea of the fact that the current, I mean, the war on drugs idea or the drug prohibitionist idea didn't work, didn't stop people taking drugs and just created this enormous black market which created these criminal empires, created this, this like power in so many places. So how do we try and take that money out of the black market as much of it as we can, again, if it's not absolute, to try and reduce it and also how can we try and attend to the idea of people with addiction problems and the US right now obviously terrible level of addiction problems and drug overdoses and so forth. So how do we try and kind of find that drug 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 policy reform? Where can people get your stuff? What where would you like to send people? So uh, you can I've got a Substack called Narco Politics. You can check out. Uh, you can also see a link to that and some other stuff on my website. Uh, it's uh, www.yoangrillo i o a n g r w i o dot com uh, g r i w l o dot com uh, butcher my own name there um, and my books uh, books. so it's, it's got three books you can see on Amazon bookshops uh, and so forth last question how was uh, Joe Rogan yeah yeah great big supporter of Joe Rogan it was very happy to go on his show and his podcast in 2019 um, I think he's great uh, I think he's a uh, you can really see meeting him what a great interviewer he is and how he you know it makes it look easy but he has got a very special talent and with the you know the latest um, botched job at trying to cancel him or, or trying to get him to you know was I think was kind of laughable um, I think he's he's still standing strong and a, a big supporter of his of his podcast when you when you go on is there like a talking beforehand or what's it what's it like do they send you out there so I there was a, it was a process somebody recommended me uh, you know a very very nice nice guy recommended me uh, and we exchanged emails and it was just kind of an exchange of a few emails and then I I went out there uh, I was going to do some other work in LA at the same time do some interviews in LA with some people and so I, uh, I the, the day before I went it was when he was in Los Angeles before he moved to Texas I went and checked out his, his studios his big kind of building with, with no marks on it and I was like 
you know, an email to check it was the right place. Oh, yes, yeah, it. But I hadn't talked to anybody by phone or anything. It's just like a couple of emails. So then I walked in there, um, you know, met, you know, first of all, it's just like this, this massive building. And then I opened the door and I knocked on it, no answer. Then I was about to walk away and then suddenly the door opened. I walked into a massive empty warehouse, basically, with this like studio in this one corner. Then I walked in there and Joe Rogan pulls up, comes in and we had a little bit of chit chat. And it was almost like, then he said, oh no, get it on right away. And bang, that was it. And yes, it was straight in there. So yeah, quite experienced. He wants it on straight away in case that's what I wanted when I when we got on and I had my lip bleeding everywhere from my yeah. rennies that I was anti-acid rennies. That's what it is. Uh, he, well, he's someone yeah we all look up to. I suppose a lot of us look up to in the podcast industry, regard regardless of you know people's political opinions and stuff. He's just so good at what he does and and he, he does so much so much work and like the questions in three hours bloody hell. Absolutely, it gets, it gets you into a certain place. I think after time, you you kind of you start to lose because it. You know, as as a journalist, and you you know when you you write books and you you go on tours to promote them, and you start getting into like talking points, you repeat, and you see people do that all the time. They, you kind of repeat the same points, the same stories, and then when you when you get beyond a certain time, you you start getting beyond that, and you start getting to a different space beyond that. People start to let their guards down. Um, I think that's that's one another good quality of his shows. So it's interesting when you when you get to the hour mark, hour and a half mark, two hour mark on those conversations when often when you find the really interesting things. Thanks, Johan. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. After we stopped recording, Johan and I chatted for ages about shared philosophies and views and our experiences in Latin America. He's a top, top guy and it was a pleasure having him on the podcast. I haven't been doing the bonus episodes with Patreon of late as it's so hard to ask people to do the homework for it in advance, but I have been sending those questions to a few guests coming on soon, so it will be back. Please bear with me. For now, the main benefit of Patreon or Apple subscribers is the three episodes a week without ads and no ads experience so get that on patreon.com slash andrew gold it's a great way to support me in this podcasting endeavor it's like giving me a tip at the end of the week or month or whatever a few whatever's it is a few dollars it's very much appreciated please keep commenting on apple and Castbox reviews do help and they're great to read uh just gives me something to look at doesn't it i got a rare three star review from i am blued in the u.s who wrote often on the edge, sometimes uncritically edgy. Um, I'm reading this out because I shouldn't just read out the five stars. I need to read out everything. That's transparency, isn't it? Um, And it starts nicely. I love Andrew Gold's interviewing style and inquisitiveness. He also has a great knack for finding guests with interesting and controversial ideas about our world. The podcast does what it says on the tin, but with mixed success. Every few episodes, I'm left disappointed with Andrew's utterly uncritical handling of guests that say, pretty extraordinary things. Now, uh, I Am Blued's uh, review goes on for quite some time. It's quite long, so I won't read out the full review just, you know, for the sake of time and stuff. But it uses Dr. Gad Sad's episode as an example. And I think there are plenty of podcasts that feature more critical hosts. And that's just not really me. 
I do try to push back in a subtle way from time to time, but this podcast is curiosity first. Uh, the reviewer does say, you know, they like the inquisitiveness. So it's curiosity over judgment. Um, that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as immoral or ill-researched views of my guests. It's just that I trust my audience to make up their own minds. Uh, Gad's sad as well for me does answer those questions. I mean, he is a, a, an academic. He does a lot of research. He even talks about what he calls nomological networks. We spoke about that at length in the podcast. For example, when looking at whether gender is a social construct or, a, or an evolutionary trait or whatever, or like gender, gender traits, I mean, he researches monkeys to find that male monkeys play with boys' toys and females with female toys. He looks at young children below ages where they can be socially adapted and finds the same. He does many, many more tests and surveys before coming to a conclusion. It doesn't mean there is no opposing view and opposing evidence, but it's enough for me to broadcast and then it's up to you to make up your minds as to whether you want to research further or take Dr. Gadsad at his word. It wouldn't be much fun if I just kept going back, but what about that? What about that? Um, that said, I appreciate I Am Blue's input and I take it on board. It's just not really the show I do and I appreciate that they may want a bit more condemnation and judgment from their podcast as more critical eyes. In any case, I hope they continue to enjoy some of these episodes and that the rest of you keep up with them too. Next week is sexual psychologist Dr. James Cantor, and I have a feeling that I Am Blued might want to skip that one. It's probably the guest who has said more controversial things on the show than any other. Not for the faint-hearted, that one. But if you're up for some edgy food for thought about the nature of our sexualities, don't miss it. You've been on the edge with Johan Grillo and the Drug Wars. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.